and giving people grace and reminding ourselves to give people grace and and um, and but what happens when you got to deal with it, right? Because the, the, you can't you you can you can get yourself to a better place by this perspective change, but what happens when you actually have to deal with it? And that's what this next next talk is going to be about. Is like this is this is how to have a hard conversation, or it, 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 at least um, my learning to this point on this, and it's totally incomplete, and it's always ongoing and refined, and some of you are ahead of me on this path, and, and it could make this talk infinitely better, but this, this is something that just is, is kind of years of my personal experience, and as I mentioned before, part of that comes from my personality. You know, I'm a, I'm a highly blunt person, and more of a, a fight versus flight person, and you know, I'm kind of one of those people that that, and part of it's the family I grew up in. I don't think there was a private thought in my family. You know, it was kind of like, um, you know, I grew up in one of those types of homes, and so uh, there was. If if you had an issue, you dealt with it. You know, and it wasn't until I got married that I realized there was another way to exist. You know, and. Uh, my wife's family is the opposite of my family, so that that was that has been an interesting learning for me. But uh, part of it's who I am, you know. Um, on one of my 360s, I, I do 360 every year, every other year, and and a lot of you have to do that for work, and it's sort of a chance for people to anonymously tell you what they probably need to tell you all the time. And you know, one of the things on my 360 said, um, Justin has a conflict-friendly personality, so. You know, I, I'm not proud of that, I, but I've, I've had to work on that. And so because of my marriage, because of my life, um, just because you're willing to say it doesn't mean um, that the, the truth. You know, one of the things I had to learn was I really was convicted. Because I, I had a value of truth that was like, hey, the truth sets people free, so let's all truth all the time kind of thing, right? And then I read Jesus saying... There's more I want to share with you, but you can't bear to hear it right now. And I realized, okay, if Jesus is limiting truth, you know, then I probably need to dial it back a little bit. So part of it's my experience. Part of it's from being and working with group leaders and all kinds of hard conversations that come up with that. So this is kind of the distilled learning of all that, and, and hopefully there'll be some tools in it. But we're going to cover a lot of ground, and a lot of it is about tactics and approach. And again, it's kind of, it's, it's not fully baked, but it's, it's, it's where I am at this point. So right there at the beginning, it says an unavoidable reality, uh, an unavoidable reality. Leadership involves people and people are different and people have different desires. You, know, you think about James 4 and James says, you know, think about the root of the conflicts and quarrels among you. So here he's talking to the church. He's like, you guys are fighting with each other. And why is that? It's because you have desires, unmet desires. And you're not getting what you want. And so it's just people, you know, leadership involves people and people have different desires and it causes conflict. So it's, it's natural and it's inevitable, but it's not unavoidable, is it? It's, that's why there's quotes around that. It's not truly unavoidable. There's lots of people, some of you here might say, you know, I'm a Jedi master of avoiding conflict, actually. Uh, I, I worked for a church where that was our hallmark. We, we never dealt with hard things. And, you know, that was a, that created a culture that was just so unhealthy, you know, it, it, and it was masked, what we'll talk about in a minute, it was masked by 
kind of, kind of a false sense of what, it, what harmony was. Um, but I remember one time I was sitting in a church meeting. I was at, on the church staff, and a younger staff member um, was making a comment about how just conflict-avoiding this entire church culture was. And they said to me, you know, they were being sarcastic. They said, I wonder if I were to come into work and stab one of these people, if somebody would say something to me about it. Like if somebody would say, hey, we need to kind of have a talk, you know. I mean, and the fact that that, that sarcasm made sense tells you everything you need to know about that, about that church situation. So, you know, conflict is nothing new. Uh, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, the disciples going, fighting over who's going to be first. You know, even P- you know, Peter and Paul in Galatians 2 having it out. I mean, that, that's one of those things that I just marvel at. Like, here's, here's Peter, who is one of the core disciples and is totally looked up to, and he's behaving in a way that Paul thinks is both inconsistent and hypocritical, and Paul has to call him out. And then Paul fights with Silas, um, kicks John Mark, you know, out, who later on they kind of get back together. So all of us face this. It's nothing new. And there's a, there's a particular case I want to kind of share as we go that happened with me and a colleague, and, and this was somebody who, um, this was a really good friend. We were, when, we, when we joined the North Point, uh, we were peers, and this is one of these people, some of you in this room are like this person, where this is one of these people that, that no one dislikes. They, everyone loves this person. Their woo is off the charts. They probably have a gazillion Facebook friends everybody's best friend, everyone loves this person, and, and super friendly guy, super funny guy, um, just awesome, awesome guy, and when we started working together, we were peers, but then over the course of time, I was put in a position where now this person had to report to me, so I had to put on a different lens in viewing this person, and, and it wasn't just a friendship now, it was about performance, and unfortunately, um, their work performance, you know, they, they had gone a long way on their relational abilities and woo, but they were starting to to struggle performance-wise, and I had to kind of broach that part of it with them. And we had this conversation. We, we kind of went out to lunch, and the hard part about this was, you know, we were good friends, and so, you know, he was kind of all excited and, and like, wanted to talk about family and sports and all this kind of stuff, and I felt like I was about to break up, you know what I mean? And, and so we're, we went to this restaurant, and he's still, you know, he's still is mad at me for taking him to this restaurant because it was one of his favorites. And he's like, I couldn't go back there for like five years after this conversation because you ruined it. But <clears throat> so, you know, I had this conversation with him and it was really, really hard. And there were some things in that conversation that, that I feel like I've learned and kind of helped that to where I can tell you, I don't want to ruin the fully end of the story, but, but still in relationship and great relationship. And, and it was a hard conversation to get there. But sometimes that person with initials that you wrote, you have to have the conversation. I have to have the conversation. And and that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about when we have to have the conversation because it's not just about I can't take it anymore. I've got to have the conversation. More importantly, it's about it's the answer to the question, what is the most loving thing to do? Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to have these conversations. Letter A, genuine love is incomplete without difficult conversations. Genuine love is incomplete without different com- difficult conversations. So if you love me, if you really do love me, 
you're going to tell me, right? Like my wife tells me when there's food in my teeth or when my zipper's down or when my collar is funky because she loves me. That's at one end of the spectrum. And she doesn't want to be embarrassed publicly by her husband. There's, there's that motive too, but let's, let's focus on love. All right, at the other end of the spectrum, right, an extreme case of this kind of conversation in love, if any of you have been a part of uh, an intervention where there's someone who's addicted to something and it's destroying their life and everyone who loves them sees it's going to, if they don't address it, it's going to destroy them, it's going to destroy their relationships. And sometimes families, in an extreme act of love, will risk all of the relationships to tell this person something they desperately don't want to hear, which is you need to go into a program and break this addiction or it's going to kill you or someone else. And that is at the other end, but that is an act of love. When families do that, now the person doesn't receive it that way, but that is an act of love of friends and family. So those are the extreme poles. And honestly, at the root of it, when I sat Tim down to talk about work, were there mixed motives? Of course there were. were was it like, there was, a, there was a thread in me that was like, hey, now you're reporting to me and I want to look good. And so your performance needs to be good to help me look good. There, there wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say there were pure motives perfectly pure motives. There aren't pure motives this side of heaven, I'm convinced. But I will say this. It wasn't just that. It was, because here's what I was tempted to do with Tim. What I was tempted to do was I really valued our friendship, and I was tempted to kind of say, I wonder where else I can shuffle him off to in the organization where we can stay friends and someone else will have to deal with the performance thing. Because I just, I wanted to sort of not wreck the friendship for the sake of this, but but in all honesty, there was a thread of love in what I was doing for Tim because I knew this. If I shoved him off into another department or found some excuse to weave him into a different part of the organization, the thing that he needed to deal with was not going to change unless someone worked through it with him. And the person who he might next be under might not have the friendship or care that I had of him. And so part of what it meant to love him as a friend was to threaten or put at risk that friendship by having this hard conversation. So it was, in part, the loving thing to do because biblical love involves grace and truth. Jesus was the fullness of both. He was grace and truth. Jesus was uncomfortably gracious when you read his words, and he was at times uncomfortably truthful. And I mean, I know we, we all believe, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, and so we look back on his words and, and we're like, this is God saying. So we don't, we're not very critical of Jesus' words. But if you look at the disciples, Jesus made the disciples uncomfortable a lot. And the disciples would go to Jesus, you know, probably respectfully, but they would be like, uh, Jesus, you know, when you say that, the Pharisees get mad. So, you know, kind of like, you know, they were, they were uncomfortable with Jesus. I mean, you read words when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And because it's Jesus, we're like, hey, it's Jesus, you know. But if we're standing there, it's like, eesh, that's rough. You know what I mean? If we're honest. So Jesus was uncomfortably gracious, but he was uncomfortably truthful. And all of that came from the author of love. So Jesus calls us to both conversations. Gracious conversations, you're a prisoner to be freed, not a problem to be solved. But also those difficult conversations. Because love is not the same thing as being nice. Niceness leads to artificial harmony and ultimately to unhealth. Love is not niceness. Okay? Artificial harmony 
is that thing that you experience in Christianity when we're all behaving one way in each other's presence. Oh, we're all nice and kind to each other. And then they leave, and after group, we're like, oh, my gosh. Can you believe it? You know, or we're driving home like one more night. I cannot take one more night of this. You know what I mean? But would you ever know that by observing our group, right? So artificial harmony is the temptation of a lot of Christianity. It's especially tempting for people who are wired by God for harmony and peace and tranquility, like my wife. But the the dark side, there's a totally healthy God-driven side of that. The dark side of that coin is there's a temptation to settle for, for artificial harmony, which leads to unhealth. Patrick Lencioni has written a ton of leadership books. Some of you may have read his books. He is a man of faith. He works with all, you know, Fortune 100 companies, nonprofits, all of it. He has done a ton of consulting. He runs a huge consulting business. A very, very well-respected consultant that's worked with thousands of organizations, churches, nonprofits, for-profits. He has a quote in this book called The Advantage that he wrote, which is, The Advantage is a book that summarizes his collective wisdom in consulting organizations to this point in his life. And he says, if I boil everything I've learned down to, down to what I've observed, these are the core principles that drive what I've seen in organizational life. This is a quote from this book, Advantage, that addresses this issue. It says, in all of the organizations I've studied, I've found there's a continuum of sorts. At one end of that continuum is no conflict at all. I call this artificial harmony because it's marked by a lot of false smiling and disingenuous agreement around just about everything, at least publicly. Nowhere does this tendency towards artificial harmony show itself more than in mission-driven nonprofit organizations, most notably churches. People who work in these organizations tend to have a misguided idea that they cannot be frustrated or disagreeable with one another. What they're doing is confusing being nice with being kind. And I would say they're confusing being nice with being loving. So artificial harmony, you all can resonate with it because maybe you work at a place where it's like we're gonna, we have this kind of false veneer of artificial harmony. Maybe you're in a family that's struggling with that. Maybe you, like me, has worked in a church that that was our problem one of our problems. Um, And maybe that's happening in group because that can happen in groups. And here's here's what happens to things with artificial harmony. It it seems healthy on the surface, but really it's toxic underneath and it will unravel. It will unravel. And And it can unravel groups and it can make groups mediocre. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we say the enemy of groups is busyness. I actually think the enemy of groups sometimes more often is mediocrity. Because if we're all pretending and no life change or transformation or anything's really being dealt with, you know, then Christian groups are just a glorified book club. You know, and I've got a a guy encouraged to get in a group at North Point, a guy who wasn't really tracking with the Lord. His son and my son play sports together. We encouraged him to get in a group, and he was sitting in the stands the other day. And he said... uh, he was trying to be nice because he knows I work for the church, but if I took the filter off, what he was trying to tell me was, hey, are all groups as mediocre as my group? Because I thought I was signing up for some life-changing thing, and it's, it's all right. But I can tell you, he's not going to sign up again. And part of when you hear him describe his group, part of what you realize is at the root of it is there's just a bunch of artificial harmony, a group of people who are sitting in a circle once a week and not really dealing with anything. So it can affect, we can't underestimate the cost of this. Difficult conversations, let it be, are a vital part of our personal growth process. 
almost all of us, I know this is true for me, but most of us, we don't grow without challenge, right? Without, you don't, you don't grow your muscles without working them out in the gym. You know, you have to work hard to get a degree or certificate to do what you're doing. Marriage is a, cha- a humbling challenge to, to grow and become better. Parenting is even more humbling and, and challenging in many ways. But God uses tension and trials to develop us. And most of us do not grow without that. And sometimes avoiding these type of conversations can really limit your growth, in all honesty. Hard things, I know we all seek the easier path, but difficult conversations are often more about God wanting to do something in you as well as the other person. Number two, we will never get better without doing it. It, Hard conversations, in my experience, they follow a learning curve like everything else. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I can tell you, like, you look at someone, some of you don't relate to my personality at all because you're, you're not on the fight side of the equation, you're on the flight side of the equation, and you're not high blunt, you're harmonizing. What I can tell you is I have seen my wife get way better at this, and my wife could not be more different than me. She's on the opposite end of harmony and peacefulness and, and low blunt, and she's been put in a position, position where she has to have these conversations. So I know that, that anyone can get better at it. We all get better at it. Um, they never go perfect, never, ever go perfect. You can always get better, um, but we have to do them. Lastly, they are the responsibility and res- expectation of leadership. Um, church leaders are told in 2 Timothy to guard what has been entrusted with them, to guard what's been entrusted. It says guard the good deposit. That's not just for church staff. You are the leaders of this church. You are part of an extension of the staff. You, you're not consumers. You have... You have stood up with the leadership of this church, and you're facing out to the congregation. And it's part of our responsibility. And it's part of your responsibility and my responsibility to guard what's been entrusted with us. And part of that is the culture of this church as it, as it specifically pertains to the group's culture and transformation. So, what does it do when we do that? A willingness to have difficult conversations creates confidence and stability to those who follow. In most situations, right, think about a work situation or a situation where there's a difficult person in the circle. Everybody knows who needs to be dealt with. And all of us are looking to the leadership to deal with them, right? Every, when you think about work and you think about a peer who's difficult, it's not a mystery to the team who needs the conversation ever in my experience. Everyone knows They just wonder, will the leader have the courage to deal with it? Well, I can tell you this. If you're leading a group and there's an issue in your group, your group members are looking to you in the same way you would be looking to your group leader. And you've seen this like I've seen this. If you have that person, I'll take a really kind of low-level example. If you have that person that's showing up late or unprepared or blowing off group, what happens to the group if you and I as leaders don't address the person blowing off group? What will happen six months from now? It's like suddenly group is like, okay, whatever. Well, clearly this is, there's no big deal about not showing up because everyone's on their best behavior the first 10 weeks of group, right? It's kind of like new people, want y'all to think we're perfect, you know, so attendance is perfect, homework done. You know, but after a while, some people are like, eh, I'm not feeling it tonight, right? And they just blow it off. And if we as leaders allow that behavior to continue, and I'm not talking about becoming the, the group military police where it's like, you know, you weren't here at attendance. You know what I mean. It's when you have someone who starts to treat group apathetically. If you and I as leaders don't address that, 
then everyone starts to treat it apathetically. If we deal with it in a healthy, gracious way, if we deal with it, though, hey, this is a commitment. You signed up. It's communicating something to the whole group when you blow it off. What does it do to the rest of the group? Standards, right? It's like we're taking this seriously. All of us need to take it seriously. So when we have the conversation, it creates stability and confidence in people who follow. So difficult conversations are avoidable. But they're unavoidable if we want a healthy culture and transformational groups where people's lives are changed. And there's nothing more important. So how do we do it better? I know that's a lot on why we should do it. How do we do it better? Three things to do. Work hard to undercover the real issue. Work hard. Wow, that's insightful. So work hard to undercover the real issue. Okay, what does that mean? At the heart of every difficult conversation is a real issue that needs to be addressed. There's something that needs to be addressed. And this is what this is going to represent. Okay, this, this ball right here represents the real issue. It's kind of prickly and it's, it's difficult. It's why this is kind of like, it's not easy. It's like a little bit of a porcupine here, but it's the real issue. So on the, on the, I think on the next slide, there's a picture. Okay, so here's two people and there's our real issue. Okay, there's our, our prickly ball. And the first thing we have to do is get clarity on this. Because the clearer we can get about this, the, more, the, the better the difficult conversation will go. So let's take... <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's take the, a, a, a way to categorize this in, in the next point here. Most issues are rooted in one of the four C's. Okay, so these are, this is just a handle, not the handle, but this is, this is a way to, and you can develop your own system of categorization, but here's what we're after. We're after clarity on this, and so I'm going to give you four buckets to try out and see if it lives in those buckets, but you, ha you can have your own buckets. Um, the first is character. Is this, is this thing a character issue? Now, in groups, that can be honesty, that can be punctuality, that can be somebody who has a perpetual victim mindset in group, like, woe is me, it's everyone else, it's not me. You know, those are kind of character-type things that that, that that might be at the root. It might be a chemistry thing. It might be just valuing different things, right? It could be chemistry between me and a group member. Like we were talking, I was talking with a couple earlier about their group, and they were talking about how... Um, there's all these difficult, or I'm not difficult, there's all these different personalities in their group. You've got the fun social people, and you've got the dead serious intellectuals, and the social people want to stretch fun time out as long as they can go, and the intellectuals are like, why aren't we, why aren't we reading our Bibles in Greek? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, some of this is who you are as a leader and what you value, and, and other people in the group and what they value. So you have to ask yourself, is this a chemistry issue with me? And sometimes it's chemistry with everyone in the group, right? Culture. Culture is how, how have you decided groups are supposed to function in your church? Like if groups are far more of a facilitated environment and, you know, it's something where it's like, hey, we're, the, the, we're emphasizing sharing and somebody comes in and says, I was looking for miniature Sunday school. I don't want to have to talk about my life. I just want you to teach me the Bible and fill in the blanks. Like that's a cultural difference. And you may, as a leader, may have been trained one way by Brookside and then you might have someone in your group who's trying to drag the group in a different direction. And it's a direction they prefer, but it's not what the culture of this church has determined. And then competence. And in, in competence in group is, there really are some people who are not socially competent to be in group yet. It's really true that there are people that are not ready to be in group because of a lack of social competence. And that might be what this issue is. So, what we need to do is, is we need to take, it, what, because here's what happens. This is the real issue. 
But the real issue gets infused with all kinds of other things, our emotions, all kinds of stuff. And so by the time we're ready to have the conversation, it doesn't look like this. It looks like this, right? Because this has all the extra stuff in it. And so most of the time, difficult conversations cost us something. And so we, we typically have a, a default mode of letting them go and go and go and build. And so the real issue is in here somewhere. But what's happened is it's now grown because of emotion and other things, and it's become enlarged. So now here's the problem. If, 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 I've, if I have to have the conversation now, it's going to be messy because I'm going to hand off a boulder that's much bigger than the real issue. And a lot of times when difficult conversations go bad, it's because they're happening in this state. Part of our job is to do the internal work to return it as close as we possibly can to the actual issue. The difference between a difficult conversation going well and going poorly is often the difference between it happening in this state and happening in this state. So this first step of quantifying the issue is actually a step away from the conversation that has to happen. We have to step away because it's this big, and it actually shrinks it a layer. Try the next slide. Let me see if, it, if the next slide is, is a visual illustration of this. Okay, so there's our, there's our ball with all these issues. This is step one away. Evaluate using the four Cs. Now, let's talk about the second step away, which is calculating design differences. This is what I mean by design differences. Design is our personality, wiring, all of that stuff. Because all of us are a combination of wiring, personality, experience, values, and more. So when I use the term wiring, that's temperament, type. Some of you have taken Myers-Briggs, other assessments. One of the continuums that my wife and I are, are first of all, my wife and I are, are different on every assessment we've ever taken. But like on the Myers-Briggs, it has a thinker-feeler continuum. And, and so when I say uh, wiring, I'm thinking, you know, there's a difference between thinkers and feelers. That makes a difference when you're going to have a difficult conversation because you approach a conversation with a thinker differently than a feeler because of how they receive information. Personality, you can have a personality that values relationships and you can have a personality that values results more, and those are factors. Maybe we're different, maybe we're alike, but I might have to translate this conversation into a language you can speak. And if I'm a results person talking to you, a relationship person about results, that's not going to be translated well. So how do I translate my perspective into a perspective that you have, a language you can understand? Experiences might be a factor, and understanding that person's experiences is going to be a huge factor. For example, let's say you have someone in your group that at a previous church was kicked out of group for the very same thing you want to address. That experience is going to make that conversation different because they're carrying baggage into your conversation from previous wounding that happened in another group. And that changes the way that conversation should go. And there's all kinds of other things. There's cultural differences, there's gifting, there's gender, there's, there's all kinds of things. So all of that impacts the conversation. So again, here's what we're doing. We're, we're taking a step back and we're saying, step one is categorizing it. What is the root that I think this thing is? Step two is calculating design differences. In the, and, the, and the goal is to get as close, not perfect, but as close as we can to the real issue because that's when we can have the conversation. So number two, our design informs our perspectives and all perspectives are incomplete and biased. Our perspective is our way of seeing the issue. 
And there is no such thing as perfect information, and there is no such thing as perfect perspective, no matter how right you feel. And this is a critical, critical, critical thing to understand because a lot of us love to feel right, and the way we feel is so strong it feels perfect, but that's not true, and God designed it that way. So if you are fighting that, your disagreement isn't with me or some personality book, your disagreement is with the way God designed it. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is, is, the Corinthian church is fighting because their gifting is different, their perspectives are different, Paul has to figure out a metaphor to communicate while they're experiencing what they're experiencing. And what metaphor does he choose? He chooses the body and he says, here's how it works. God has diversified the gifting and perspectives in the body so that they are different. There is no one complete thing. Some of you are a hand, some of you are a foot, some of you are an eye. What would the body be if it was an all an eye? It wouldn't function well. God designed it to be interdependent. Here's what that tells you. First of all, he alludes in that passage to what you would expect as the common experience is. Should all the hands say to the feet, we have no need of you? Because what's the temptation? People who are gifted and see the world the same way kind of gather together and go, what's wrong with these people? Right? Because we all have a tendency to see other people as flawed versions of ourselves. Right? So as, as soon as we find someone in our group that's like, I know, these people are so not serious about God's word. You and me. They're going to work for us in heaven. You know what I mean? Like, that's how we see the world. And, and yet, God is like, I purposely made it interdependent. People are different because I made them that way. So, the, there's why this is so important. Because when you're having a difficult conversation with somebody, the temptation is to show up, I'm in the right, and I feel complete. What's necessary to have a healthy conversation is space created by curiosity. And curiosity is not possible unless I believe I don't know everything. Because I'm not curious if I've already decided I know everything. What makes me curious, and you'll see why curiosity plays such a critical role, curiosity is only possible when I truly believe at a fundamental level my information is incomplete and my knowledge is incomplete. And that has to be true, no matter how we feel. We don't know everything because we don't know the other person perfectly. All right, so that's the second step. Third, letter C, reduce noise to a minimum before, before the first conversation. Reduce noise. Noise is the result of our sin nature energizing our differences. So the other thing we have to deal with is we've got, we've got not just what is the real issue, what category does it fall in, how are our designs different? Thirdly is, I have my own flesh and sin nature that's energizing these differences. It's kind of like I told you with Tim. Were my motives loving towards Tim? Absolutely. Were they selfish towards Tim? Absolutely. You can't look bad because it makes me look bad. Right? So my flesh is in there as well. So there's interference that caused, that noise caused. It's, it causes us uh, to see, not see clearly and respond productively. So Without being, mo without being honest about our motives, this can't go well. Because here's what happens. If I'm communicating with Tim, and the majority of what's driving me to this conversation is about me, you can't look bad because it makes me look bad. If that's what this is happening, it will never go well. So part of this movement away is purification of motives. With the understanding, I'm never going to get to fully pure. But I need to be aware what's really driving it. Is some of this jealousy? Is some of this envy is some of this anger is what what's driving me in this so a key third step is reducing the noise down so now we've moved away and we're closer we're out here third step away 
Okay, noise reduction is that third step. Now we're going to talk about, we've, and it, it, keep in mind, this is like, okay, we need to have this difficult conversation, but if you think about it, what I've just described is three degrees of internal work before we're ever ready to start moving towards the actual conversation. So that's what we're going to talk about now. Four quick keys to, to uh, um, actually having the conversation. First of all, healthy detachment is a good indicator of readiness. Healthy detachment is a good indicator of readiness. This isn't detachment as, as relates to apathy or lack of caring. This is detachment in the sense of I am not emotionally hooked and derailed, right? This whole internal process has gotten me here. I've, re I've reduced my disturbing emotions, right? This is the difference between driving home and having imaginary conversations where you're saying to the person everything you want to say and no longer having those conversations but still needing resolution, right? You've You've done the work to reduce that angst. And so now we're ready to move towards. And, and the best, this whole thing is a personal inventory that we've taken. We've explored our differences. We've asked ourselves the hard questions. What's really going inside me, really? We've acknowledged the gaps. I'm biased. I don't have perfect information. It's created a little bit of humility and curiosity in us. And we need to expand the possibilities out here. So now I'm at healthy detachment, expanding the possibilities, especially the positive ones. This is more true for those of you that have a glass half full perspective, which those of us in the glass, oh no, I'm sorry, the glass half empty people, which those of us who glass half empty call ourselves realists, not pessimists, you know, because this is really where we are. But anyway, for those of you that have a default to suspicion or jadedness, and those are extreme, but if you go to a negative place first, this is more important step to expand your possibilities to include positive ones. If you're, if you're, this might come naturally for those of you that just have a high trusting personality where your first step is to assume that you fill in the blank with a positive thing. So wherever you fall in that continuum. So for example, here's one thing I did not know about Tim when we sat down and had a conversation. I was frustrated at the way Tim was executing his job, but what I didn't know was he had worked in that role for three years and his previous boss had never sat down with him and walked him through his job description. So he was ignorant. Now, there's a part of me that thinks, well, you should have sought that out. But the truth was, no one ever sat down with him and said, here's what the expectations were. Now, if I'm frustrated with Tim and I'm like, you need, to, you need to step on the gas and you need to pick it up, and I don't allow for the possibility that maybe no one ever told Tim what was expected, that's creating that sort of curiosity and bandwidth to do that. So when we can get to that curious place, letter B, the conversation with genuine, begin the conversation with genuine curiosity by asking discovery-based questions. So this isn't, I'm all worked up, let's have the hard conversation. Let me tell you what I need you to know. It's actually starting from a position of questioning. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to ask discovery-based curious questions that will do one of two things. It will certainly provide more information to you, and it might confirm your conclusion but I will tell you in my experience, it almost always changes my perspective. And if I'm asking questions, hey, tell me a little bit about this, this role. Like, you know, how did you, how do you come to view it? Or when you think of it, what, what caused you to prioritize this over that? How come you spend your time doing that? Tell me a little bit about that. And there's ways to do it that are discovery-based. Discovery-based are open-ended, right? They're not leading. Like, for example, I had to have a hard conversation with somebody one time and I was pretty mad, and my, the person that was coaching me could sense that this was the wrong time for me to have the conversation. 
And they were like, hey, why don't you practice on me first? And uh, pretend I'm that person, and let's hear your questions. And essentially, my questions was, was like, well, it seems like a person with half a brain would have done X. You did Y. Can you explain that? You know, I was like, eh, that's not really open-ended, you know? So you can't fake genuine curiosity, okay? It has to come from a place of, I really am incomplete, and I want to start with questions because it may lead you to confirm what you suspect, but most often I will tell you it will change your perspective. Letter C, emotional common ground to help the other person see what you see. We're going to skip this point because the whole last talk is drilling down on this one technique. So um, keep hanging there. We'll, we'll get to that. Letter D, have realistic expectations of the first conversation. Um, there's a great book called How to Argue So Your Spouse Will Listen. I know at this point what you know about me, that shocks you. My wife and I have read this book. But in that book, Sharon Morris May, who's brilliant, is both a counselor, a Christian, and a, and a therapist. And, oh, I'm sorry, a scientist. She talks about the human brain and what happens in conflict. And if you look at the next slide, we have these glands in our brain called the amygdala. And when we fight or when, we're, when we feel threatened or when we feel like this is a difficult conversation, what happens is our blood, blood our brains flood these glands with chemicals that are the very same process when we're in danger. So what happens is when you're threatened by the bear on the path in Colorado, you're not thinking about the grocery list. The reason why is because your brain realizes all functions have to be directed towards survival at this point. Because the grocery list isn't going to matter if the bear kills us. So what happens is your brain is designed to focus you. The truth is during a difficult conversation, this is exactly what happens in people when they realize uh-oh, you're not happy, this is hard, something is threatened there. And so their amygdalas get hijacked. And when you realize they're not just fighting you, like sometimes we categorize that as stubbornness or inability to hear, which it may be, but oftentimes they're having to fight their own biology in that. So you have to simplify. I have to simplify my bottom line for the first talk. And I have to adjust my expectations to be like, I can't, I can't dump my entire bucket I have to really kind of think about what can they handle in this moment. So how do we follow up? A, reestablish communication as quickly as possible. It communicates we care, even if they're not in the mood to hear it. One of my friends on staff confronted me about something. I was so mad at him for doing it at the time. Um, I handled it, you know, I have enough behavior management to be like, thank you. I appreciate you loving me enough to tell me that. I want to stab you in the eye, but thank you and brother, you know. Uh, but, you know, my, my coping mechanism is to put people in, like, deep timeout, like, deep emotional timeout. So I, I was, you know, he texted me that night as my friend and was like, hey, man, I know that was a tough conversation today. I just want you to know I want to check in and see how you're doing, you know. And, of course, you know, being the mature Christian I am, I'm like, forget it. Delete, 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 delete. You're a deep timeout. You'll be lucky if I talk to you in a month. So the truth is, the truth is, when I got to a healthier place, I was able to look back on that and realize that was actually communicated care. What, did I want to hear it? Did I receive it? No, but, but it was coming from a place of love and reaching out to me communicated that. So the temptation sometimes is to withdraw, but resist that temptation. The next thing is to affirm that you're for the other person. Say it and mean it. They won't feel it. If, if, if we have done the internal work to get here, then our motive for the conversation is at least in part, if not hopefully the majority, out of love. When it's in love, you can look at another person and say, I am for you and mean it. And they won't be able to receive it. But time will bring perspective. 
It does for me and it does for other people. Not always. Not always. And last, or next, ask what they heard. What, what did you hear? That first conversation, what did you hear? Or even in the conversation, what have you just heard? And expect the answers to be different. Because you might have communicated one thing and they might have heard another thing. Part of what Tim and I are great friends and part of what came out of our whole journey together in this was Tim eventually told me, when you told me you weren't happy with my job, all I could hear was my dad telling me you're never good enough. So he was projecting onto me, his father speaking to him, I'm not his dad, I wasn't coming from the same place at all, but he was hearing his dad's voice when I was having a work conversation. So sometimes expect the answers to be different. And letter D, schedule a follow-up conversation right away. Um, we have to give people the space, enough space to grieve. It doesn't mean we wait forever for a second conversation. We can schedule one, but, but scheduling it has to be close enough to where it doesn't linger in limbo forever. But it also has to give people space to grieve because for those of you that understand the grieving cycle, when someone dies, there's denial, there's blame, there's anger, and the rest of it. And I have found that actually is the very same process that happens after a difficult conversation. Because what we grieve is things that we've lost. And something has been lost in a difficult conversation. Trust, safety, harmony, something's been lost. And people need to space to grieve. And, and sometimes what you'll experience is an awkwardness and a distance as they grieve. Like one of the things that, w I, honestly, this is so selfish to admit, but one of the things that was hard about having this conversation with Tim was everybody loves Tim. And, and I knew that Tim was going to be hurt and he was going to go to his wife, who I knew really well, and he was going to say, Justin told me this, and he was going to go to his friends, and he was going to say, Justin told me this. And I knew Tim's way more cool and likable than me, and they're all going to hate me. You know, and so a lot of times the reason, honestly, I'll tell you in church world, a lot of times this doesn't happen in church is because we got to see each other on Sunday, right? And, I mean, it doesn't matter how big your church is. You see that wife walking down the hall like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like I've experienced that. I don't want that, you know, and I knew I was going to have to endure that as part of getting to a healthy place. So people are going to have to have permission to go through denial, blame, and anger. I, I had to... I had to let a guy go earlier in the year, long-time employee, really hard situation, and, you know, I, I told him in that conversation, I was like, a day is going to come when in order for uh, you to get at a healthy place about this and for us to get a healthy place about this, you are going to have to go through a season where you give yourself permission to be angry, and you are going to say some things about me that... I already know, like right now in this moment, you're not saying them, but I can tell you at some point you're going to be thinking them and saying them. And I want you to know that when you do that, that actually has to happen for you to get to a place, a healthy place. You have to go through that grieving cycle. If you stuff that, you will never grieve this appropriately, and you'll probably never be able to let go or forgive the organization or me or whomever. And he was mature enough that I could have this conversation with. And sure enough, a good buddy of mine was on a trip with him, and I told this guy, I said, listen, just make sure that when you go through that anger period, which is natural, healthy, and normal, that you communicate in that phase with people that are safe. Because what happens is I don't want to see you burn unnecessarily bridges with this organization because there is a future partnership with you and our organization. 
but there won't be if you go around leaking toxic oil everywhere. So, so just pick safe people to do that with. Sure enough, my buddy was on a trip with this guy, and he was going there, and my friend was not a part of the previous conversation, and he was dying to tell me what this guy was saying about me. He was like, you know, I, I don't want to gossip, but, uh, you know, there were some things that were being said. And, and I was like, look, Ryan, uh, I don't even care. Because let me tell you something. I have felt that way about people who have hurt me. And that's a normal, natural process that he needed to go through and needs to go through. I'm glad it happened with you, honestly. Um, and, and so I'm okay with it because I've done that too. And actually that has to happen. So just understand that's normal. You know, because the story we want to tell is we want to say, I had the conversation with them, and they were like, oh, my gosh, it's, I feel like Jesus is talking to me. Thank you for sharing this. Let's have a hug. We're good. You know, it doesn't ever work that way, and part of that is unnatural, right? Part of that we have to give space to this. So I have found that typically a difficult conversation is more like three conversations in parts at least, not just one conversation. This is something we need to get better at because our groups depend on it our group culture, our church culture, and actually this is the body of Christ in action. Don't you think one of the most ignored passages in Scripture is when Jesus talks about how to confront other people? I mean, how rare is that in your experience and my experience? It's totally rare in church world. Why? Because we've exchanged niceness for, for grace and truth, and, and it's not healthy, and it's not helpful. Now, a lot of us have been hurt and wounded by conversations like this, and it makes us reluctant. I get all that. But what you're doing in groups is really too important. So, it's hard. Sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it's hard. I can tell you as someone who's, who's had to have a lot of these conversations, Tim and I are super close friends. My wife and I are actually the two people in Tim's will that are going to take care of their children if something happens to them. And at the rate they're having children, I'm a little bit nervous about that. But that's how close we are, you know. There's other people that I've had these conversations with, and that hasn't been resolved. So it's not all about having a nice bow. But I'll tell you this. Tim, would, if he, Tim was standing here, he would tell you this. Our friendship and true relationship with one another was always capped at a certain surfacey level. The fact that we went there and got through this hard trough and got to the other side is a much deeper friendship. And here, here's the thing to remind, especially the, those of you who are harmonizers and are struggling with this idea. The level of relationship you're experiencing now, oftentimes you feel like, I'm going to put too much at risk by going here. But oftentimes, real deep relationship isn't possible unless you go to the other side of that. Because the people you and I really love in our lives aren't just the people that tell us exactly what we want to hear. They're the people that loved us enough to tell us something no one else was telling us and stayed engaged with us in an ongoing way. And when you hear people kind of bring their best buddy up, best girlfriend up, and they say, you know, this is the person who I've walked in life with, and they're the person that tells me the things sometimes I don't want to hear, but, but I love them enough and they love me enough to do it. That's just an indication of true deep relationship is actually sometimes waiting on the other side of these conversations. And what we're experiencing is a foot deep, sometimes. So here's the question I want you to ask during the break that we're going to take. What of, as you think of that person, because I want to do, do as much as I can. I realize this is a big blah, but I want to do as much as I can to say, what did you hear that connected in any way with the person whose initials you wrote down? 
like, where are you on this process? Is it here? And you know what? I haven't done any internal inventory. How do I get here? Is it, oh, I'm actually at a good place. I need to take another step. Or is it, it's time to move towards? Where are you at with that person? So we're going to take a break for about five or six minutes, go to the bathroom, get some food. And um, as you take that break and sit at your tables, take a few minutes to just talk about it because it'll help, it'll help kind of embed the information that we just heard. And then we'll wrap up with a particular technique that I want to share with you that I think is really helpful. Okay? So take a few minutes. What do you think, uh, Steve? Five. five minutes. Five minutes, and let's, you guys have been so gracious and patient, and then we'll kind of wrap up.